Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. October 18, 2017, episode 117, To Be Young Again. Hi everyone, welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. This is Kevin England joining you for another episode where we sit down and talk about beekeeping. Theme of this episode is things that we could do to make beekeeping more appealing to the younger generation. It wasn't a planned episode in that manner, it just kind of turned out that way. As the topic kind of bubbled to the surface on a number of things that we'll talk about. At times I have a habit of meandering into some topics at this point of the juncture, but I know that I have so much content to bring this go-round. And I wasn't happy that the last episode went to 145, so try to keep this one to an hour and a half. So let me go ahead and tell you what I have on store. We're going to dive right in. Topic number one, troubles. Things are being found in honey. Topic number two, RNAi primer. Very basic, but I promised I would bring it. Topic three, unintended consequences. I'm going to talk about Takamba from Monsanto and some problems being caused. Topic number four, a day in someone else's shoes. Got to sell honey for Tim Schuler. I'm going to relate what the experience was. Roundtable number one, an Australian YouTube resource to try and lure in younger people to the craft. Roundtable number two, younger people bring the craft to us, showing a cutout. Roundtable number three, beer and bees, an unlikely mix. For roundtable number four, I'm going to bring a follow-up to Bee Free Honey. I've got my hands on some. And then I'll have a couple odds and ends in the closing comments. So like I said, right to business here. Let's go ahead and get this thing started. The Local Hive Report is next. Local hive report for this episode. It's still unusually warm here in New Jersey. It was 70 degrees plus the last couple days. And it's supposed to be in the 70s from the forecast of the week coming up. It started last episode with 15 hives. And unfortunately, I could say that there are only 13 left. Went out to do my final preparations in anticipation for October 31st cutoff and discovered that the 2015 package hive had been completely raided and decimated. There were piles of dead bees out in front. My only guess is that the hive uh, got robbed or something. I can't tell. You know, when I went through the frames, it was just completely devoid of anything. There were a couple frames of unopened brood and so on, but um hive was gone. And next to it, the split that uh, I had made from it, the walkaway split, same story. I had said in the last episode that I found a bunch of dead bees out in front of that hive, but I never checked it because I saw things coming and going. I didn't have time. But when I got into it, found out that that hive, too, was pretty much empty. There was a handful of resources and some bees in both of those hives, and all I could do was harvest whatever I could out of it, and move them into other hives that could use propping up. In the first yard of my property, I had one hive that 
just didn't build anything out, and I was able to take some of the resources from those hives and stock it in there, and I'm going to feed them and hope that I can get the, the one hive through that is short. The good news is one of the nukes that I talk about, deep, deep, shallow, that one, built out. In the last two weeks, amazingly, the thing has built out, and it's really in good shape. I'm going to feed it one more time this week just to get it to where I think it needs to be. And the rest of the hives are all heavy and seem okay. I know it was hot, but my focus was to take all the feeders off, to close all the entrances down. And I did the inspections of the hives that I thought uh, were needed the little look. And unfortunately, found those two that were gone. And it took more time than I wanted. I had two objectives to accomplish, and one of them was doing mite checks. So I'm going to have to save that for this weekend. And then treatment with oxalic if I need to be. I walked uh, for exercise this morning with Jim Schmalls, who lives down the road. We walked down, Sharon and I, and Jim accompanied us back. And on the walk back, I said, Jim, I need you to hold my hand as I do oxalic treatments. So... Jim's going to join me this weekend as I do some mite checks, and I'm guessing I'm going to have to treat. I'm not necessarily in a bad way because as the brood is shutting down in anticipation for winter, that means less cap brood, and any oxalic treatments are going to have a better effect for that. So the one thing I don't want to do is nuke the hives, though, and kill a lot of bees with that. So I'm a little leery at seeing how that's going to go. I'll let Jim talk me off the ledge. So local hive report, 13 hives on the property. Everybody's in good shape. One of the key things I did was close all the entrances down to just a small opening. It's getting cold at night. I don't want any mice in there, and I also don't want to see a lot of robbing. And even as I walk around the yard, there are yellow jackets everywhere. I brought a pollen patty out because I had one, and I thought about feeding it, and I left it sitting out on the back table. I walked into the garage, and when I came back to the back table, there were five yellow jackets eating the pollen patty. It couldn't have been 30 seconds. So believe me when I say that yellow jackets are out, and I'd really like to see some cold, cold weather to get rid of them. I remember last year, this time of year, that it stayed warm through to November, and it was really hairy because the yellow jackets were out doing their bad, evil voodoo stuff. So... I think that's it. I'm going to leave it right there for the local hive report. Do go out and check the videos on YouTube. I did a quick summary while I was in the midst of doing hive checks. And uh, you can go to youtube.com slash nwnjba. There's a part one and part two where you could see the two yards. I didn't include the Ware hive, but I'm happy to report that I was right. That bottom box, they are building comb and they're going to town. So that hive looks really, really good. I'm happy for it. All right. Local hive report. Check. All done. Let's go ahead and head into the episode. For topic number one, I call this one troubles. In episode 116, I mentioned the assertion of how much chemical load is in our hives. I was making the point of being able to limit the amount we put in if 
what Monsanto is working on comes to fruition, and we make it a practice of using Monsanto's solution instead of harsh chemicals. I'm not here to debate the if component. I wanted to discuss the first part of the statement about the chemical loads in the hives. I'm aware of two times in talks that I sat in on where chemical loads were reviewed from studies from universities. The first one was a while back when Marianne Frazier spoke of the work that they did with Penn State. I recorded Marianne talking on the topic September 13, 2011, and it's posted as a bonus issue of this show from, you guessed it, September 2011. Hey, Kevin moment. You know, as I think about things in a different way, back when I posted about three or four of these things, like the Marianne episode of Sidebars or Special Editions, I was still trying to find my way so long ago that if I had included these as episodes in the episode count, that would make this episode mm, 120, 121 or something. Just pointing that out for Gary from Kiwi Mana, who is fast looking to overtake us in the episode count, Space Race. And they've only been doing it. Mm. Wow, I better get with the program. No, I don't pay much attention to these things. <laughs> End of Kevin moment. So back to the topic at hand. There's a lot of noise just recently about honey having pesticides in it. Specifically, neonicotinoids, which... I saw recently abbreviated as capital N, small I, capital N, or something like that. I had never seen that abbreviation. I thought that was pretty kind of cool. I have noticed that news bubbles up in the public perception in layers. Internet postings on Facebook feeds, small websites and blogs, news sites online, journals, periodicals, specialty sites, here I'm talking about things like Wired, WebMD, TED Talks, and the like. And near, if not the top of the stack, is a mention on morning news or something like 60 Minutes. Timing is so important as to whether an important or benign topic rises to meteoric exposure. Case in point is the study that three quarters of all honey on earth has pesticides. That headline is crafted in such a way as to be a siren for alarm. Let me read you a headline. Ready? Bad news for bees. Three quarters of all honey on earth has pesticides in it. Now, what did you hear? Blah, blah, blah. Honey has pesticides in it. That's what you heard. That's what I heard when I read it. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> honey has pesticides in it. But let me read that again. Bad news for bees. Three quarters of all honey on earth has pesticides in it. That report is from The Verge. The Verge. What is that? Have you even heard of it? I have because it's a tech origin podcast blog thing. And I'm employed as a technology person. But they've expanded their coverage to include other things besides technology. And I would consider them one of the third or fourth tier news outlets in my analogy from a moment ago. So in fairness to The Verge, parsing the article after you got sucked in by the headline, the second sentence makes sure to quell the alarm of concern from the glaring headline by stating that, quote, pesticide levels were below the limit deemed safe for human consumption, end quote. 
So headline, honey is contaminated. Disclosure in the piece, it's not harmful. That same sentence adds one more quip about the insecticide that, quote, there was still enough insecticide in there, meaning the honey, to harm pollinators, end quote. So while it won't kill us as humans, it will indeed hurt pollinators. It follows up that second oh my statement with a quick one from the study author saying in quotes, quote, there are almost no safe place for a bee to exist. I said that wrong. There's almost no safe place for a bee to exist. So let's stop for a moment and discuss the implications of the headline in the first paragraph. Joe Average, with their soundbite mindset these days, is going to glance at that headline, read that first paragraph, and one day this week, knowing I am a beekeeper, will say to me, did you know your honey is contaminated? Blam! In one paragraph, honey is no longer good for you. Uh, So this catastrophic moment is simmering. With the tragic news of Las Vegas, the topic did not make it into that top level of news reporting. On a slow news day, it could have had the potential to be the lead because of the seriousness of the defaming what is universally held as a truth about honey being really good for you. So this is juicy that it will happen. It will happen. Not today, maybe not tomorrow, but as soon as the news cycle comes to a need for a topic to trot out, honey can be universal news and I feel it's inevitable. Why? Because if The Verge, a technology blog, picked it up for page views with a link bait, oh, I'm sorry, Verge, link bait headline, then it's a universal topic and it's going to be everywhere. So I have to uh, talk about the conspiracy theorist. I don't begrudge researchers. They, they do what they do. And I went and read the study and the methods. They had citizen science where they just requested people send honey in. They gave them specific instructions. Go buy honey. Tell us where it is. Tell us who made it. Tell us what the origin of the honey is. And it all has to be well known or we're not using your honey. They had tons and tons of samples and they disqualified so many of them because the key parameters as to grasping where the honey came from, both region, location, beekeeper, operation, and so on, had to be known. One of the things they would have loved to have known is what type of area, meaning what's the surrounding where the bees were stored, but the data is so hard to come by and subjective that they really couldn't do that. So when they put the study out, they kind of gave all those things full disclosure out, which is good on them. But there is a subtext of the article that has huge implications for beekeeping. What was tested for? Neonics. Isn't that interesting? I'm not going to question that it it wasn't a valid study, but what about fungicides and herbicides and other nasties? I could go both ways on this. Are you trying to villainize neonics? Or are neonics so important that people are concerned about it that that's what they tested for? Or was it something simple where the fact that they didn't have the ability to test for fungicides, herbicides, or, you know, who knows? I, why, why drive yourself batty trying to figure all this out? 
So at the end of the day, it's not bad journalism. I'm not really happy about the headline, but there was accurately described. This is bad for bees. Bad for bees. Not good for bees. What I get upset about is the author, or whoever was the editor, picked up on a style that's all too common today. Summarize the sensationalistic pieces into small sound bites, provide a quip of the researcher for validity, and post it. And to be fair, there's quite a bit more supporting evidence in the coverage, and it was not my objective to bash the author. Personally, what concerns me is that people don't read. They don't read. They're a soundbite society, so they're not going to go look at the study and find out what's going on. And I'm going to end up dealing for the next month or two or however long about the water cooler conversations over this thing. So now as a beekeeper, we'll be faced with educating ourselves so we can provide more depth and sound bites to counter the sensational sound bites of the first salvo. It's scary. It has the prospect of becoming very scary. It's possible that bad things are in honey. I would hope not, but the possibility is that if we're putting things out in the world, we should not be surprised if it turns up in our food. Put neonics in every nook and cranny corner of the world, and it's going to show up what, in what we eat. Duh. So the article points out that the levels are within safety margins for humans, but bad, likely impactful for bees. And the headline did start with bad news for bees. But again, after the simple fact is we're going to see honey is for us. We eat the honey. And it's more disconcerting to learn that something we treasure as pure is tainted. So there's going to be more focus and pressure to rid the world of neonics after this. Is that good or bad? I won't speculate. I'm genuinely interested in knowing um, more about the study. I kind of reviewed it today at lunchtime. Truth be told, I suspected this day would come eventually. Let's see where it will take us. But one thing's for sure, life has changed. And it's only going to be a matter of days or weeks before the sullying of honey becomes a notion with every individual within the earshot of a television set or internet browser. It is sad days. I'll have a link to Bad News for Bees. Three quarters of all honey on earth has pesticides in it, but... If you look about on the web and you search for honey and pesticides, you're going to find dozens of articles about this. It's inevitable it will be found. Topic number two, RNAi primer. The topic of RNAi or RNA interference doesn't interest me that much. That's a funny notion given that I just covered it in episode 116 and I'm about to cover it again. In context to the great news from topic number one, it seems even more depressing to talk yet again about varroa mites, which have been the catalyst for all the treatment discussion in the first place. Me, I'd simply like to raise honeybees. Yet, and with a heavy sigh, this is reality and one has an obligation to stay informed. The RNAi approach for the solution has been out there for some time now, and I've never dug in it. As there's an aspect of overload, and at times you have to compartmentalize what you are going to learn so you can kind of keep your thoughts organized. 
Well, I know it has been going on, and I've kind of kept an eye on it. I didn't think it was viable until recently, so it seems now is the time where it's gaining momentum and we should get up to speed and pay more attention to it. That's a personal viewpoint on that. So I said in our last outing that I would take a little more time to explore RNAi and describe what it is. I consider this a public service announcement to you and, quite frankly, to me, is that I don't even have the basics. And given I'm not adept at the subject matter, this will be basic as an exploratory. Let's start with RNAi description provided by Monsanto to educate these insights are pretty much a synopsis right from their materials. Number one, cells use single strands of genetic material called messenger RNA. The exact sequence for this mRNA is different for each protein. Number two, a strand of RNA attaches itself to the mRNA breaking it up and interrupting the protein-making process. Number three, scientists can include RNA interference, or RNAi, by feeding bees sugar syrup laced with RNA-coated to attack the mRNA for specific proteins and varroa mites. The bee with different genes isn't harmed. Somehow that didn't seem right, so maybe I didn't transfer that, but I think the general just stands, so we'll just let it go. The sentence structure seemed off. So we, of course, know what the outcome would be. The RNA would be taken in by the mite, and the desired effect would occur, which I'll explore a little further. Cells produce genetic material for reproduction. DNA instructions are exported from the nucleus, of a cell as RNA or mRNA, which is also known as microRNA. These instructions in a human make up the cells for brains, kidney cells, bone cells, or whatever else we need. Ribosomes process them and translate them into protein building blocks. So DNA holds the instructions RNA produce the genetic materials for reproduction. I'm paraphrasing, but that's kind of the way you can think of it. So in the process of creating something, cells produce genetic material, and we know sometimes bad elements get into that cell genetic factory. Viruses, like say the Israeli acute paralysis virus, or IAPV, are vectored into a bee's cell and multiply to make the bee sick. These are viral RNA, not made by the nucleus of the cell of the bee, but transmitted into the cell of the bee by its host, the varroa mite injecting the bee when feeding and through the wound it creates when it bites into the bee. As with any bad RNA, an immune system will attempt to respond and try and disable that viral strain and keep it from reproducing. Here is where we turn to the cell's built-in RNA interference, which nature uses to prevent a viral RNA from replicating successfully. RNA interference involves an enzyme that researchers have nicknamed DICER, 
which chops up a bad RNA and other proteins come into the picture to silence the bad gene and render it ineffective by blocking it from reproducing. Let's picture a line set up of a bunch of different things all going in to make some sort of process. Somewhere along the line, a bad actor sneaks in. And as each of the items are going into whatever is being built, the bad one's approaching, and a team comes up and slices it all up and says, nope, you can't go in. And when it gets to the manufacturing process, because it's diced up in a bunch of pieces, it's not accepted and it's just pushed away and the cell gets built normally. Probably not the greatest illustration, but it kind of serves the purpose. So in this narrative, the cell capability to quell virus RNA was covered, but we have to remember that the cell is producing good RNA to build cells. And one could theoretically use RNAi to selectively target certain types of normally occurring RNA production from the host cell and shut them down. For example, to the point of Varroa mite research, ceasing production of a way of disabling RNA kill those cells that allow for reproduction and the ability for the foundress mite to lay eggs shuts down. So this is kind of the simplistic view of what Monsanto is doing. The reproductive cell is about to be built. All the parts are being assembled and there's one there that's key to making it happen and we know what it is. If we could kill that component that would make up the cell, no reproduction. RNA interference is going after that one specific target that prevents the, the foundress mite from reproducing. The interesting thing to consider here is the risk to a bee. The targeted mite reproduction cell is unique. The good news is if you target the way that the mite reproduces, it's a specific gene that only the mite has and not the bee. So there's no possibility that you would render a bee sterile in this case because you're trying to impact the ability to reproduce and lay eggs. That's the good news, but it's also, in my mind, kind of troublesome. You're, you're playing God here a little bit. What we're saying here is when it comes to mites and bees and possibility to this RNAi material making the bee sterile by accident, it shouldn't work that way because their gene makeup is distinct and unique. However, dot, 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 nature finds a way. If nature wanted to kill off the Varroa mite, it would develop its own RNAi to suppress reproduction. Messing with this could make one consider getting out the end of the world placard sign and heading down to the street corner to ring a bell. Perhaps honeybees and mites are different, so bad for the mite. But what if this genetic material impacted, say, a fly, and then flies suddenly went away? It's only illustrative, but the impact of losing some unintended target could have vast implications. Mm. I'm trying to protect a corn kernel, so I put seed coating on the seed and I plant it in the ground. What harm could be? Yeah. Let's leave that aside for now and take a moment to call out something that I brushed past in the last episode for brevity's sake, but wanted to give a little more attention because it's germane to the motivation and also helps to resent a little clearer the steps that got us to talk about RNI, 
RNAi in the first place. I mentioned in the Jerry Hayes topic last episode that he had some inclinations back in the day about RNAi application for bees. That had to do with mosquitoes, Biologics, and Jamie Ellis. Let's rewind the clock to 2006 and discuss the emergence of viruses as one of the lead suspects in CCD. As the world tried to review what could be happening, viruses were identified as a possible linchpin in the problem and companies like Israeli's Biologics were working on Israeli Acute B virus, which I said before was known as IABV. As described in a few minutes ago, one could suppress viruses by trying to replicate through the cells via a form of RNAi interference. And that's what Biologics was doing. They weren't trying to target the Varroa mite. They were trying to target IABV. Biologics was focused on IABV. They weren't thinking bigger picture because they're in Israel, and they were trying to focus on Israeli acute B virus. It was Jerry Hayes who made a bigger connection. At least that's what I'm gathering. There's muttering by conspiracy theorists and people who dislike the company saying in back channels that Monsanto was only blaming the Varroa mite to take the heat off of themselves, and it's a diversion tactic for the problems of the beekeeping world. And it takes the focus off of big agriculture. Actually, if you listen to what was said, as relayed by Jerry, it was not a ruse on Monsanto's part. It may have possibly been partly of what he was doing, if I thought I heard him correctly. He directly had a hand in the recognition of targeting mites as part of the more focused effort for solving the honeybee problem. He was one of the ones that educated Monsanto that while IAPV problem Biologics was working on, when Monsanto acquired them was important, it was the Varroa mite that's vectoring it, along with another, other hosts of things that they were giving, and they were working on the wrong target. If you take the mite out of the equation, you get IAPV along with everything else that we loathe to form wing virus, chemicals in the hive for treatments and such, all of that becomes a thing of the past. It somewhat connects the dots and informs on why Monsanto changed their focus and started promoting that the real problem with the bees is Varroa. Is there truth in diversion tactic conspiracies? Maybe. And then again, maybe not. Who really knows? But if one considers that they could try to do the science on A, IABV, or go after the Holy Grail, it doesn't take much consideration to make the leap. So Jerry's talk last week is one in a series he is making as part of his new way of life. I cannot tell if he's embracing it or if he's going through the motions as the new anointed Monsanto honey health, honeybee health lead. That's what his title is, I think. Still, and I have to say this because I interacted with him personally when I was placing a microphone, microphone on him for one of the recordings. Behind what seems to be a penance, I looked him in the eye and I see a mission. A quest. Folly, the world's undoing, or savior, judgments will play out over time. 
But I got the sense that he really believes he is doing this for the right reasons. I don't know if that's true. That's a personal impression, but it came through for me. You're going to have to believe whatever you believe based on what you know. And we're all entitled to our opinions. Me personally, I'm waiting to see where the science falls. But answer me this. Is R-N-A-I the answer? Of course it is. It is. A thousand years from now, we will genetically replicate anything that we want if we don't annihilate the human race in the meantime. It's, it's going to happen. We are working so hard in that field. We look at the discovery of Fleming and penicillin or Salk and polio and think nothing of it. But in those days, it was radical, groundbreaking science. We have no idea today if this will work, but given we have sequenced genomes and microbiology is in full tilt, this new and still mostly unexplored area of science is burgeoning and breakthroughs will come. And when certain things are unlocked, it will become routine and we'll look back and wonder what all the fuss was about. Scary? Sure. Fusion energy? Scary. Sure. Stem cell research? Scary. Sure. There are simply a whole list of science and technology things out there every day that are scary. Sure. Let's just hope that good science practices evolve to keep pace with the ingenuity of mankind. It's time for my infomercial statement. But wait, there's more. A quip that so often ends one of my topics before I move on is I've discovered something else that I want to share with you. Shortly after episode 116 was posted, listener Lauren Brun sent me a link to a feature on Jerry Hayes by Wired Magazine. They did a much better job because they have real writers and were invited by Monsanto to do a feature on the travels of Jerry Hayes. In comparison... My work was scrubby cliff notes compared to the detail and writing of the wired author, but at least my points were pretty much aligned with what they reported in their expose for their September 2016 issue. As I reflect back, I was thinking as I was prepping notes for this segment and recent segments on this topic that this is such a polarizing topic. And I worry about posting things that someday will come back to haunt me or at least make me uncomfortable. I will remind everyone that I am but a humble beekeeper. I would feel bad if in my guile to learn and share I got something wrong. I just talked about RNAi, which I haven't the first clue about. It's my biggest fear each time I get behind the microphone and compels me to dig in on these things. But clearly there are places that I go to that I don't understand. So I am happy for the little victories of seeing this article, which I didn't know about, and not finding things that I surmised were wrong or misinterpreted. Perhaps I was just trying to read along and agree with the points that I wrote. Like I said, this piece on Jerry Hayes was in Wired Magazine, and if you're now interested in the topic, it's out there, and in my opinion, worth the five minutes it takes to read it. The article is entitled, 
a swarm of controversy. In their struggle for survival against killer mites, bees get an unlikely ally, Monsanto. I'll have a link to that article from Wired. Out in our show notes for episode 117. And thanks again, Lauren, for supporting the program as you always do. Appreciate that. Topic number three, unintended consequences. I called this topic unintended consequences as it's a double entendre because by serendipitous means, the topic of Monsanto as it relates to bees came up in a different way this week in my pollinator newsfeed. The unintended part was that I was not looking for something from Monsanto, but it came to me. And I think the topic is important enough to call out, so here we go. As reported by the Delta Farm Press, Monsanto's Decamba product is being reviewed for its impact to pollinators. In a report published September 26, 2017, there's an account from a beekeeper by the name of Richard Coy, who manages around 13,000 colonies in the areas of Arkansas, Mississippi, Missouri, and California. Coy's honey farm is apparently one of the largest in Arkansas. The article entitled, Might Decamba Be Affecting Pollinators? expresses Coy's concern that the use of Decamba, by the way, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, D-I-C-A-M-B-A, I'll call it Decamba, but maybe it's something else, has resulted in unintended drift that is killing nearby vegetation and impacting his operation. He and his brother, in operation of the business, spent time researching by process of elimination where the problems were occurring for his hives and tied it back to an observation that vegetation near where Decamba is in use for soybeans has impacted the ability for the hives to gather pollen. So much so that it's impacting brood cycles and resulting in colony impacts. The correlation was that where honey production stopped, farmers had planted soybeans. To confirm his observations, he started some research and came upon a study from Penn State University which reviewed that widespread Dicamba use, where it's going on, there would be enough visible drift and volatility to damage nearby vegetation. Upon taking in this understanding, he could inspect visually where his hives were underperforming and verify the correlation. His next action was to turn to the Arkansas plant board who visited the locations and verified his finding. What he and they found was vegetation such as wild grape, red vine, ragweed, it had curled leaves and retarded growth prior to blooming and was a loss for pollinators. As it is with a lot of research, when you start poking around, you find other things. In looking into the problem upon finding this article, I came across another report posted October 6, 2017, from the Missourian News website entitled, Decama Drift Causing Widespread Damage to Missouri Crops. In that post, it gets to some of the ideas as to what is going wrong. Decamba is an herbicide created by Monsanto to eradicate troublesome weeds. It is, according to Monsanto, 
something that's been used for over 50 years, and there is a whole host of other products by different trade names that include it as an ingredient. In this particular report, it indicates that about a decade ago, it was reformulated by Monsanto to give farmers multiple modes of action for dealing with difficult-to-control weeds. In conjunction with the reformulation, Monsanto also developed Dicamba-resistant crops, including soybean, corn, cotton, and probably others, so farmers could spray Dicamba, spray, could spray Dicamba over the fields. This might sound a bit familiar, but unlike Roundup, which is another Monsanto product, Dicamba moves through the air a little bit differently. It is reported to have a certain volatility or tendency to vaporize. And this vaporization makes it carry further. And I seem to think that I get the gist of the problem as that it's going out to non-target plants. According to the source, there are three primary causes of the off-target application. Number one, the lack of buffer zones by farmers, which seems easy enough to fix. Number two, the use of the wrong nozzle. The nozzle, it appears, impacts the size of the product being applied. And if the nozzle is too fine, then the droplets will be too small and they carry in the wind. The third is another application issue. The boom that they're using to apply the product is too high. There's a recommended height And some of the farmers simply are spraying up too high, and it's getting in the wind and blowing off the field. In other reports, I saw other things that are impact not mentioned in that article. For example, maybe the wind is too high and blowing too hard. Maybe the product tank that they use for something else was not cleaned out of this product, and they ended up spraying it somewhere where they didn't attend. In other words, they didn't clean it out well enough after they sprayed with it. And then there's the consideration of temperatures. Apparently with heat, the hotter it is, apparently the more volatile the product can become. So going back to the original article, what's to be done about this? Arkansas placed a 120-day ban and a fine for misuse when they looked into the problem. The Arkansas State Board is considering a ban on using the product from April 16th through to October 31st. An interesting side note to the ban notion was it wasn't only beekeepers that led to this. It appears the problem was reported in two ways to officials. The beekeeping story that I reviewed, and by growers not using Dicamba tolerant crops, reporting crop damage by having their crops ruined from nearby drift. It appears that if you're not using Dicamba tolerant crops, your soybean leaves will curl and your beans will begin to cup as a telltale sign that you're being impacted. Uh, Kevin moment. My father lives in Maryland, and adjoining his property is a huge field of soybeans. We were walking the property line, and I noticed that a large swath of the beans right next to the property line had curled leaves and curled beans for about 20 feet in from the property line. And everything on this side of the field was dead brown 
terrible looking. I distinctly recall discussing this with my father and asking what it meant, and we postulated that they might have sprayed the field perimeter with something and inadvertently got some of the soybeans. Those soybeans were curled and had withered yellow leaves. And I joked with him how tasty edamame was and that he had all the edamame he could sneak, but you would not see me picking any of those yellowed plants. Perhaps it's a bad notion to wonder if it was Dicamba, but it sure sounds like what was being described. I know, I'm probably inflecting something that has no relation. Okay, end of Kevin moment. So scary stuff, drift of weed killer having unintended consequences. And here's to hoping that those who took the time to report the findings, like Richard Coy, find a good conclusion. Nothing can resolve the hardships thus far, but there certainly should be something that can be done about it going forward. And that ban that they were implementing is a good place to start. And it sounds like they were putting that ban in as a proactive measure, and then they would evaluate and figure out what the long term was, which could actually mean the ban stays in place. I'll have a link to the referenced reports in the show notes for this topic, topic number three. Topic number four. Four topics this episode. This one is a day in someone else's shoes. As you might have gathered, I speak on occasion to New Jersey State Apiarist Tim Schuler about different topics. Sometimes I seek advice on different things like so many other beekeepers around the state. Wednesday last week, I gave Tim a call for a short question, and when he cleared something up for me, we got on the topic of his daughter's wedding, which he had mentioned previously. His daughter, Emily, was getting married, and Tim was hosting the event at his home. As one might imagine, he was a little preoccupied. During some of the chit-chat about his week, he disclosed that he was calling around to see if someone might help him out and cover his honey sales at the annual Columbus Day weekend, Ocean City, New Jersey block party. Sounded a bit distressed as he was getting to the end of his options. I hung up from Tim and turned to Sharon and said, maybe we should consider helping Tim out. I didn't offer to Tim on the phone because I knew that we had already committed to a charity event in our own town on Saturday for the local PTO. But in discussing the matter further, we decided to explore if we could consider our PTO activity a donation and forego our minor obligations of being there in person. And that's how it turned out. Sharon was able to get someone to cover our duties, and we called Tim back and let him know we would cover the event for him and take this thing off of his plate. We live literally on the opposite side of the state from Ocean City. Ocean City, of course, is on the shore, and we live six miles from the Pennsylvania border. Set up for the event was at 6 a.m., and it was scheduled to run for 5 p.m., and if we were going to partake from our home, well, that would be, if you do the math, up before 3, and that didn't sound like a lot of fun. Instead of up before 3 a.m., we decided to rent a room and stayed at the Ocean Manor Hotel in Ocean City. I hustled home from work on that Friday night, and we drove a few hours to Ocean City and stayed overnight, and yes, it was the right call. I thought it would be interesting to recount the 
day in the life of honey sales and talk about some of the things we learned along the way. I will say up front that honey sales is not my most favorite thing. We do it, of course, in our travels here and there at the fair and such, but I always wondered what it would be like to be at a festival and figured there were a lot of tips and insights to be learned by standing in for someone in their operation that had been honed after years of experience. We arrived at the location around quarter after six after tussling with McDonald's people for a cup of coffee. And to our surprise, Tim and his friend Jeff had three quarters of the stand set up already. They got there a little earlier than they thought they were going to. And instincts kicked in and they started setting everything up. The booth comprised of a simple table with some props to put products on and in for display, a small tent overhead, and each of the corner of the tent had a little pail with cement in it and a little embedded hook that they could take a bungee cord and strap the tent down in case an errant wind came to try and blow it away. Tim Sharon and I discussed his operation, products, territory, and other aspects of the business so we can answer the questions that we were sure that the public would give us. Where's the honey sourced? It's from Vineland to Vincenttown, in case you needed to know. What kind of honey is it? Wildflower and not an explicit varietal. These particulars and more took about five minutes to run down, and both Sharon and I have sold our fair share of honey products, so... We could field the rest of the beekeeper questions as they came throughout the day. Things like, is the honey raw? Is it organic? Has it been heated? Will it crystallize? Will it go bad? And so on. We're both pretty comfortable about anything others might press us for. Truth be told, the hardest thing, the most intimidating thing, was how much each of the items cost. Ask me now. Right to left, left to right, I know the answer. It becomes second nature after a very short time as to what each thing costs. Oh, Kevin moment. That little quick right to left, left to right is homage to my favorite comedian, John Panette. He had a bit where he said he knew the McDonald's menu and could recite it. Ask me anything. I could tell you the whole menu. Left to right, right to left. He left us way too early, and I don't think there's a day that goes by where I don't quote on his little ditties, as you've probably heard me say in this, if you've listened through a long time. End of Kevin moment. At first, I was intimidated with the number of products. My thought was, surely Tim would have it down to the essentials. But the surprise was was that he had a wide mix of things. Comb honey, cut comb honey, one pound, two pound, five pound, pollen in a jar, Small beeswax squares, beeswax rounds, candles, a wooden honey dipper, walnuts and honey, honey candy in small and large sizes, and finally a collection of flavored honey sticks, 13 varieties. When considering this, I and Sharon had some apprehension about an onrush of people coming in and us not being sure of what the cost was for the ante. I'll have one of these and one of these and one of these and one of these and that'll be... How much is it? Uh, 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 uh. If the one tip 
that I could offer Tim, and it probably would be a conversation because he's much smarter than I am, is that the prices could be more prominent. He had a single 8.5 by 11 piece of paper printed and framed in the display with the costs on it. And the costs were not prominent enough for Sharon and I. And I, well, the only thing to do was look at that thing upside down. And it just wasn't going to cut it. I improvised a simple solution. I cut long strips of paper from excess cardboard and made little tent triangles for the table. I placed each one near the product and I had the price for the consumer on the front written very neatly and pretty and on the back was a price for us. People in the early part of the day would point at a product and we would nonchalantly look at the back of the tent card and convey the prices. And this helped immensely in moving people through as people clearly understood what the product cost. That's the thing I think Tim is missing. And it seemed to expend more effort in providing us with exact payment. I didn't have to say that'll be $6. They just handed over $6 because they saw the little tag. I think if they had to read it on the little esoteric 8.5 by 11 sheet, they would have been going, how much is this honey over here? What is this uh, product cost? Made things a heck of a lot easier when they gave us exact change. And it really moved people through the booth when they were standing two or three thick. So as the day went on, price tags faded in the background. We memorized what the products cost, and the tags became for the customer and not us. I'm sure that Tim and Patty know what things cost intimately, and so did we by the end of the day, but I still think price tags for the customers would make sense. So inevitably you have a rush of people, and then you have those lulls that come during the day. Just the ebb and flow of things. During one of those lulls, Sharon and I had a discussion about the strategy of pricing. Are you, as a seller, better off at making the price prominent or kind of making it difficult to find? We debated the merit of that. Example, if a person walks up and has a price in mind for a jar of honey, say $7, if the jar said $8 in a conspicuous way, would the person just walk you by? On the other hand, if they're thinking $7, and there's no price, and they have to ask you, how much is that jar of honey? And you smile and you say $8. Would the social interacting cause them to think, darn, I wanted to pay $7, but now this person is smiling at me, and I don't want to make them sad or offend them. So, okay, $8. In Tim's case, I think actually displaying the prices to his advantage they are reasonable, and no one walked up and said, I don't want to pay that much. Wait, 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 wait. Well, actually, one lady told me she could buy the comb honey from $8 from Harvey's Honey, and would I consider matching the price? She was a sweet, elderly lady in a wheelchair, and she reminded me of Sharon's grandmother. I walked around the stand out to the front and gave her the jar, and she proceeded to pay me the $7 in bills and then she put away her purse and her daughter gave her a sideways glance and she said just hold on a moment 
and she proceeded to dig into her pocket for a coin purse. She opened it up, and with the broadest, biggest smile, it was so nice, she was going to pay that last dollar with something treasured, 50-cent pieces. It was really a Rockwell moment. I handed her the jar of honey, and I knelt down to her level, and I said, you make sure you tell Dottie Harvey we said hi when you go to buy, and let her know that you enjoy Schuler's honey as well. She smiled, not understanding the background of that, and assured me she would do that, and I have no doubt that she would. Dottie is, of course, friends with Tim and Patty, and was attending the wedding while we were having a little chat. I thanked her for buying a jar of honey and then walked back, put the $2 missing out of my wallet, and put it in the cash tray, and then turned to the next customer in line. When one looks at how the table was set up, you could see the efficiency in the operation. There was a tiered shelf for the honey display on one side, and an old tipped-up crate to hold and serve as a backdrop on the other side. The candy was set in the middle in a little wicker basket to keep the contained candy from spilling all over, and the honey sticks were in quart-sized mason jar with flavor labels affixed to the front. Tim's banner that had his name prominently displayed was strung between the two posts behind us, and it called out that he was a pollinator as well as a honey and wax provider. It had a prominent display of his website address and hometown, which was probably the most important aspect of the day. Repeat after me. Yes, this is local honey to this area. Is this local honey? Yes, if you live here in Ocean City and it is local. I live in so-and-so. Is that local? Because I want to use it for allergies. I want to use it for my son's allergies. My aunt from Missoula is living with me and she has allergies. The dog has allergies, so I thought I would eat local honey. I had a boil on the back of my neck and I heard that honey will make my allergies go away. (laughs) That's a little tongue-in-cheek humor, but it's not a stretch to say that. So, so many people prescribe to the notion that honey is something that will aid them in an allergy problem. Did you know that? Okay, so idea that consumers think honey is good for allergies, not that much of a revelation. There were a number of other observations on the day. We really wondered if people would buy the pollen or comb honey The answer is emphatically yes. Now we should say that we're simply an amazing amount of people there in the 9 to 5 window that we had. At some points of the day, it looked like the crowd letting out from a sporting event. It was so populated. The weather was simply perfect and people came out in droves. Kevin moment. i got to come back to the lulls of the day. You find at times to let your mind wander, and I made a tongue-in-cheek joke to Sharon that I had seen this before somewhere. I was referring to the people watching. When you are walking and there are people in the way, you tend to modify your normal gait. You switch feet. You pause or change direction. You sometimes encounter someone where you use your eye movement to forecast where you're going, but you do not walk fast because the way is blocked. Do you know what it looks like? Zombies. 
all day long, people at the most crowded part of the day, people look like they were auditioning for a role to be a walker in the horde of the walking dead. If you could have gone somewhere and gotten makeup and a little moaning played, you would have had the perfect walking dead backdrop. We giggled at that all day and it helped to pass the time. It left an impression and Sharon forwarded me a message yesterday of ironically a living dead event that happened up at the shoreline town of Asbury Park, which was only, you know, X amount of miles as their people dressed up like zombies for the 10th annual zombie walk of Asbury Park. End of Kevin moment. I suppose I could go on for quite a while on the number of interesting observations. Instead, I'll move the episode along and I'll share a few salient things that we learned. Cut comb, comb honey, pollen. We sold the limited number of jars and products that we had. I think there were about eight or so pollen things. We sold a handful of the comb honey. And universally, the cut comb was sold to all men. Every person who bought cut comb was a man. Every one of them above 65 who relayed some story about tasting honey for the first time in a honeycomb someone had shared with them. We sold a lot of honey. But, and I asked about why the number of products, wouldn't it be simpler to be smaller inventory? But actually, we were not really surprised. We sold an amazing amount of honey sticks and candy. Did I say we sold a lot of honey sticks? Um, Probably I didn't emphasize that enough. The candy was a huge seller. People relayed over and over how they use them as cough drops and that honey sticks are great for their tea or as a little pick-me-up. They were all smitten with the flavor varieties, and in this case it was evident that more was better. Some simply had to have some of all the flavors. If we had even more flavors on the table, we would have sold even more. I hope I'm not giving away all of Tim's secrets. In another one of the lulls, we pondered the dilemma of honey sticks and candy. I pretty much know that no one makes these directly out of their operation. And I don't know where Tim sources his, his, but I don't believe he makes them. But they are imperative as a revenue source. And at the end of the day, if you're going to stand alongside a road and sell products, different revenue options is pretty much a viable way to go. That was a lesson learned for both of us. I would have thought going in that we would have generated more income from honey sales, but maybe 50% of the interactions with people that day were buying honey sticks and candy. And there's an unsettled thought in my mind to this as if you would be better off simply selling honey or selling these products alongside of honey. And it's still a question for me, does, does one group of these translate to sales of the other group? On some occasions it did, but I would not suggest from the experience that you need one to draw people in to buy the other. There were people that came in, bought their honey sticks, and just turned right around. There were others that came in and bought some honey sticks, and while they were there, we talked to them about honey, and they went home with some honey. But it was few and far between. They usually either came for one or the other. And one of the things we observed almost universally is people would be walking, 
they'd spot the booth, they'd see the sign, and they'd make a beeline right for, I want that product, and they were looking for it. A lot of people relayed that every year they come to that booth for that particular purpose to get this honey or this comb honey or this something or another. Some knew Patty and Tim and recognized their honey from other outlets and they've run out and they stopped to pick it up here. And another question is like, with all these people, I wonder what would happen if you were at a baseball field and there were five tents and only 20 people. Would everybody stop and buy it because you were the only product in town? That's the side of the dynamic we're not really clear on. But at the end of the day, I think there was an immense value of being out there for their business, keeping it in the limelight, so to speak. And I really understand why Tim was stressing out about having no presence along Asbury Avenue. And a funny aside is that Tim and I have somewhat similar body shapes and hairlines. Yeah. So people walked up to me and talked to me with assurances that I was the same guy they interacted with last year. Sometimes I smile and nod, and other times I gently inform them that we were stand-ins. Most people, when hearing why we were working the booth, smiled appreciatingly, is that a word? Appreciatively, yeah. At our willingness to help out a friend that both Sharon and I considered a favor to Tim Patty and his daughter Emily on the special day. As mom and dad shouldn't have to worry about these things when more pressing matters are at hand. It took us about 30 minutes to break down after the show was over. We brought the van back to Tim's place. And the wedding was literally at Tim and Patty's house. And he graciously invited us into the tent for a little food. (laughs) We were t-shirts and grimy from the day. It was a little awkward sitting down, but Tim brought us right to his table and we sat and ate our dinner with his mom and his sister. But what we found out is beekeepers are all right with them and that's how it should be. I say congratulations to Emily and Danny and we wish them the best. We got to meet them and give them our blessings. And we know that they're off on a great start as their parents are pretty darn awesome. Four topics in the book. It might be a modern day record. Let's move to the back of the book round table. First one is hive extraction, the old and new alike. This round table is focused on an Australian beekeeping channel on YouTube. Every once in a while I come across a description of some sort of training resource online for beekeeping. And being the conservative person I am, I look at everything with a lens of viability. What I mean by that is who's the content author? Was it done in-house or is it regurgitated? Is the data current and fresh? Is it well-formed, organized, well-presented? What's the story and motivation of the source? Are they selling something? Which, by the way, is not a disqualifier, but it simply means to me that more scrutiny is in order. So when I find a resource, I sometimes dig in and sometimes I have no choice but to set it aside. It all depends upon the encounter with the information. There are only so many hours in the day and I'm a busy, busy person. So every minute of every waking hour is typically scheduled through the week, if not further. So as an example, if I'm at work and I take five minutes to detach and go on the web, sometimes I find amazing things as I'm poking around, but I'm at work and I need to set a tickler for that to come back to it and move along. A favorite tool of mine for that situation is something called Pocket. 
with the website getpocket.com, I can go back and look at things that I've bookmarked and review them at my own leisure. The key to using this tool is tagging the content, but this isn't a pocket lesson, so let me get to the topic at hand. In this case, I'm going to pass along a resource that's sitting in my pocket as a review link, but on the surface, it looks like an interesting resource for beekeepers. I'm talking about a resource provided by AgriFutures Australia and the Rural Industry Research and Development Corporation, or RIRDC. There was a call out for a series of YouTube videos produced by their Honeybee and Pollination Advisory Committee in one of the articles I found. This group created a YouTube channel for the task that is aimed at newcomers and experienced beekeepers alike. In an article previewing the effort, it states that a motivation is that the average age of a beekeeper is well over 50, and it seems they want to target younger beekeepers with this effort. Kevin moment. I'm going to go off on a tangent here for a second. I'm a little bit of a curmudgeon with this notion. But if we ever want to woo new, younger beekeepers, we need to get with the program, and we're not doing a great job at this. The older beekeepers of today's generation simply don't have the tools to understand how to communicate in the millennial world, which demands rich media, social, and sound bit delivery. Totally different way of engaging than they could ever have imagined. Condemning even my effort, my stuff is not really what they want. Flashy graphics, modern websites, young hip-talking with modern flashy movements, this is what the generation wants today. The curmudgeon in me says I watch some of these things and I just roll my eyes. It's a real problem in outreach. And if I didn't have a real job to consider, I might even consider taking this on by finding younger people to produce and delivery. But I digress. End of Kevin moment. The videos presented by the R.I. RDC channel have been produced to align with the accredited certificate AHC 32010 in beekeeping and certificate AHC 10 in agriculture. Um, I don't know what that is. And of course, if these are produced in Australia, which in my case is not the United States, well, your mileage may vary, but to the opening... As far as a source of reliable information is concerned, this one seems on the surface to tick off some of the more important boxes, so it's worth considering. So hopefully someday I'll be able to get back to it and go watch some of the videos. I still have it sitting in my pocket feed, but I, my pocket feed, but I thought I'd pass it along to you and you can go check it out. It's youtube.com slash R-I-R-D-C. That's the channel. I think you need to click on the playlist for honeybee and pollination because every once in a while there's a bee video at the front and center, but other times they have other content that they produce. From what I could see on my initial scan, they currently have nine videos in the playlist. I'll have a link to the channel in my show notes if you didn't get that. Roundtable number two, cut it out. A moment ago, I spoke of the presentation style to the younger audience. I have a perfect example. Spot on. Couldn't get any better. 
perfect example that simply fell into my lap this week. A fellow beekeeper in our association does cutouts. Robert Simonowski is as good as it gets with this stuff, and we recommend him all the time. Bee Man Rob did a cutout recently at a home, and serendipitously, it appears that a budding video producer lives there and produced a feature on their work done by Bob and his helper, who, unfortunately, I didn't recognize, so I can't give credit to. The video is excellent. As someone who makes videos and know what it takes to lead someone through a story, the editing, shots composed, timing, and such, this thing is really well done. And here's the thing. There are edits in the video that hit the style that I was alluding to a moment ago in that millennial and even younger mindset. I'm not going to spoil it. I simply want you to do it right now. Go there and see it without any further introduction and you'll immediately get what I mean about the modern presentation style. As you might have heard, my sons play video games. In one of my sons' world, there are a ton of vlogs or video blogs in the style of this video, and this is what modern presentation looks like. The video on YouTube is entitled, Extracting a Giant Beehive from Our Wall, 6,000 bees, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, and it's a work of art. The channel belongs to Zebros00. That's spelled Z-E-B-R-O-S-0-0. And you can find a link in our show notes or simply type Giant Beehive from our wall in YouTube and you should see it from the results. I'm going to stop here for a second and pause. Yeah. If you're in front of a computer, open up a browser, youtube.com, search. Okay, I'll stop. That's nonsensical. So well done, Zebro00, well done. If you want to tag along and record some additional beekeeping stuff for your channel, and I'm not joking about this, send me an email at kevin at BK Corner, because we could use someone like him producing content for beekeeping. Do take a moment to share and like his video while you are there so he gets promotion out of his work on YouTube. And that's how YouTube works, by the way. When someone has a channel, the more it gets watched, the more it gets liked, the more you browse through his channels, the better off he does at getting visibility to the videos that he produces. And me too, by the way. So when you do that, his chances of the video being seen on the internet goes up immensely, and that ensures that the good work that he, do he has done gets seen by others. Let's make this a viral video. So YouTube.com extracting a giant beehive from our wall. 6,000 bees. Check it out. Roundtable number three. Beer and bees, an unlikely pairing for pollinators. My in-laws settled in Florida after they retired in a little retirement community in Homosassa. In years past, we made the trek south, and most times we drove down, and I was acutely aware that I was passing through a well-known hotbed of honeybee research while traversing the Gainesville area in North Florida. It is home of the University of Florida Bee Research Lab, and I always looked to see if there was any way to check it out or find an event that they were hosting as we were passing through. 
It never worked out, but there was one time I put my family through making a diversion by taking a side road to see if I could find the university itself and peek on beehives somewhere on the grounds in case I ever had a chance to come back. On October 13th, the research team from the university hosted a fundraiser to raise money for a new research lab and extension center on the campus, and they did it by way of sponsoring a public outrage. In their event, they staged a live colony demonstration, honey tasting, face painting, and other family-friendly activities. In fact, the article that I happened upon says parents are encouraged to bring their children to learn about honeybees and the important role they have in the world. So that in itself is not too unusual, so why did I bother to mention this? Actually, it coincides with the theme of the episode about doing things in an unconventional way. The venue? First Magnitude Brewing Company. So let's think about this. A family-friendly public outreach event at a brewery. Hmm, that's an interesting choice. I'll draw a parallel that we have hosted Northwest beekeeping meetings at the Old York Cellars Winery, but it was not actually a parallel offering. Those, meaning our meetings at the winery, were beekeeping meetings. Mead was some of the topic matter, and the winery makes mead, or at least some of the winemakers do. And while it was open to the public, it wasn't necessarily promoted as a public outreach. But, you know, Roger, the beekeepers who's the, that we associate with, and his son, who's also a member of our association and is the winemaster, they have bees on the property and they do beekeeping awareness talks. Just as they have people driving around the winery looking at the grapes and whatever and learning about how they do it, they show them the bees, which I think is kind of cool. An interesting side note on this is bees have nothing to do with pollinating grapes, but that doesn't matter to people. They like to see hives and have interest. And they really like it when Roger walks open, cracks open a hive, and brings some honey, and they dip right out of the comb. So let me come back to a quick thought on this. I'm almost embarrassed to use this as a discussion point. It makes it sound like, oh my, did you hear that the beekeeping club held their event at a brewery the horror i actually put this in the episode to go a different direction we severely need youth in beekeeping if the college mindset today can lobby their oversight of professors or whoever to host an event at a brewery who are we to throw stones from new jersey Remember, it's my conjecture that this new world looks at these things differently and a little more liberally, and we might consider a little latitude and get with the times. As a Monday morning quarterback, it is possible that I have this totally wrong, and they simply used something like the parking lot or set up shop at the park next door. I don't know the details. I only saw an article in a newspaper. But if that's true, maybe I'm a little disappointed because... While I'm not one to imbibe, it's just not my thing, I would have a beer, and I think that would be cool. You know, a little social, a little beer, as long as it didn't become something like that where kids are exposed to something. That's the conservative in me. It still would have to be done with a little decorum. 
So I think I've beaten a dead horse far enough. Let me end with this angle. If anything, they should not miss taking the opportunity to tie beekeeping to the ingredients necessary for products in the brewery, as without bees, there would be no beer. Roundtable number four, go be free. This roundtable is a follow-up to the first roundtable from episode 109 on the product Be Free Honey, spelled H-O-N-E-E with two E's, so as not to be confused with honey, H-O-N-E-Y, that comes from bees. The Be Free moniker is because the product is not made by bees, but by humans out of apples as the major ingredient. I recently took a side jaunt for a launch to Whole Foods by my workplace to see if that particular store carried the product, and lo and behold, there it was. I've had the opportunity to visit some Whole Food markets in my travels, with the latest one being in Seattle, but I did not have luck in searching those stores and finding a jar. I suppose it's only distributed to a certain region, and I consider it ironic that it was actually in a store that it's about a mile as the crow flies from where I work. Now the million-dollar question you are probably wondering is, what does it taste like? Is it possible to concoct a reasonable facsimile to honey? Well, the answer mostly is yes. You know when you eat it, even if someone didn't tell you what it was, you would say, it looks like honey. It has similar properties than honey. But something's just a little different, and you would have your doubts. That being said, you would still be left to wonder if it was not honey, and if one didn't tell you, you would probably suspect something was up. To me, that's pretty impressive for a honey substitute. As I tasted it for the first time, I couldn't help but be impressed on the immersion that I was eating honey. If I didn't sense that lingering taste of fruit and just a smidge of a viscosity difference, I might have wondered if it was some flavored honey variation. I hid the jar and gave a taste to a co-worker and he did not say, that looks like honey but it's not honey. He simply thought I was giving him honey to taste and said it tasted like strawberry jelly to him, almost the impression that I had given him some flavored style honey. So I could see how you could get that confused. I got an apple taste, he got strawberry, but one of the things that comes through is the sweetness with a tart reminiscence of fruit. So let me say that since then, and I don't know why, the product has changed. It has developed a more and more apple flavor as it sits out, and I guess when I popped the top, air got in and it's changing its complexity. So what other impressions of the product did I have? Let me go through a few other things. The viscosity thing is spot on. I'm not professing that it would pass honey tests of not spreading like real honey and all those things, but in the jar, on the spoon, when on a stick, it really looks and acts like honey. It's a little less viscous than real honey, but it has viscosity like a thinner honey that you would find in nature and is close enough to give you the sensation of honey in appearance and mouthfeel. Many of the insights on this product are on the jar. And it says on the jar that you can freely substitute this product for honey in recipes. One for one swap out 
and that it is suitable for vegan cooking and has no artificial colors or preservatives. Other insights on the label, non-GMO, gluten-free, 60 calories per tablespoon. It would be like 64 for real honey. Fat-free, 16 grams of sugar. Honey is 17. So nutrition-wise, it's pretty much a wash and like for like when you compare it to real honey. It touts only three ingredients. Organic apple juice, cane sugar, and lemon juice. So these things are all natural ingredients, so of course I wonder about spoilage. We know honey doesn't spoil, so what about this product? There is an expected expiration date. I purchased this on October 6, 2017, and the expiration date on the package is June 2020. Isn't that curious? It is no preservative, so how long will it last once opened? And the question is, does it need to be refrigerated? The short answer is no. It does not need to be refrigerated. In fact, it says that one might expect this product to crystallize and or change color, but you should not refrigerate it. That's literally on the label. So in the store, the packaging made it fit right in when considering it was sitting alongside Honey for Sale. It got me to thinking, could someone be confused? But as soon as I had the product in my hand, I saw the prominent call out that it was made with apples. I still think there's a bit of a chance someone could be confused, but whenever I watch people buy honey, they almost always scrutinize the label for origin information. And, you know, they're looking when they're in the raw honey aisle area at the product itself, where it comes from and so on. Maybe if it was sitting next to Golden Blossom or some of the more generic honeys that you could buy in a store, people would probably just throw it in a cart, but I don't think there's a chance for a mistake here. So another thing about the label is there's an aggressive marketing message on the package about no bees required to produce the product. It is supported by a headline title that this jar of that product saved 7,500 bees. I think that's a bit of an oddball way to communicate a message. I suppose while true, there are a number of paths one could argue the point. And, as an aside, do we remember that apples are pollinated by bees? There is a fact there about how many bees are involved in making a pound of honey, 10,000. And again, that 7,500 bees were spared by this product being on the shelf. And there is a good notion that they donate a percentage of their sales to generate awareness for pollinator conservation. So good for them. So all the packaging aside, that's a bit of a nit. I'm simply motivated by sharing impressions of the product. And then I had a great curiosity to finally get a taste of it. To me, it's not honey. It has too much tart apple taste on the tip of the tongue. But if the world came to an end and honey was not available, I would completely treasure it as a reasonable facsimile. And on the whole, I have to say I'm really impressed. Going in, I was kind of lowering the bar on my expectations. I really thought it would have some odd gummy texture or off-putting taste. But if I were not privy to as much honey as one could consume, I would eat this with my waffles 
or put it on my pancakes and actually enjoy it. It was $5.99 for a 12-ounce jar, and that price is a good option for a beekeeper to know as vegans or the occasional person who does not like honey, and yes, there are some of them out in the world, might see this as an interesting option. I noticed on their website that they're expanding the line of products. On the homepage, they have a sampler pack for sale, and it has flavors in the offing. Original, the one I've just described, one flavored with mint, an ancho chili version, and one that is slippery elm. The last one has some slippery elm, which I think is a tree, and it gives some sort of texture or mouthfeel. That's an odd one, don't you think? At the end of the day, the tagline speaks for itself. Plant-based, gluten-free, vegan, woman-owned, BeFreeHoney.com. Well, look at the time, would you? It's time to wrap up. I want to try and finish by 90 minutes. I'm going to rattle off a couple of things. Thingverse was supposed to be Thingiverse, T-H-I-N-G-I-V-E-R-S-E in the last episode. Hopefully you figured that out. Bunch of videos posted to youtube.com slash nwnjba. I'm not sure if I mentioned this, but the NJBA videos from the Sussex meeting. The honey judging feature that I did with Tim Schuler is up. Bob Kloss filmed the mitigation of a bear attack on a cathedral hive. The part one and two prepping for winter videos that I shot of my apiary that I mentioned in the local hive report. And a honey testing insight with Dave Waldman, a small little insight on that. Uh, also, I'm going to post very soon, imminently, the winterization talk that I gave to the NWNJBA at a meeting this weekend. So I had other topics prepped, but I have run out of time. So you'll have to come back for 118. There's only one more thing to say. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone and be well.